This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Today's scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 23, verses 26 to 56. Reading from the New International Version, verse 26. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put a cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. Verse 39, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insult at him, Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are also under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and the darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the woman who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now, there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from Judea, town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. 
Then he took it down and wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had ever had yet been laid. It was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The woman who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. This is the word of God. Now I'll invite Pastor Andrew to come up and explain what we just read. I'd like to invite you all to join me as we go to God to ask Him to help us to understand His Word, especially this Good Friday. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we really pray that you will help us to get to the heart of the meaning of Jesus' death for us as we remember Him this Good Friday. We pray that the depths of His love and His sacrifice for us will truly help us to respond rightly before Him. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Everyone disappoints us in the end. Do you agree with that statement? That everyone disappoints us in the end. Now, when I was growing up, I was always looking for mentors and role models. It could be my parents, or maybe my teachers, or maybe just people that I know who are my peers who are older than me. But over time, I realized that every one of them disappointed me at some point in the end. I realize that's the nature of being a human being, right? That we disappoint people. Even those who are closest to us, our best friends, our spouses, our parents, even our children will disappoint us. It's part of being human. As people disappoint us, we disappoint others as well. That's why I find it a bit strange sometimes when sometimes people say to me, oh, you know, I'm not a Christian because this Christian so-and-so disappointed me. Because it's in its very nature, part of being human, to disappoint one another. And more or not, more often than not as well, I always say to them, you know, like being a Christian is not having a relationship with another Christian person, but being a Christian is having a relationship with Jesus. So what really counts in the end is, does Jesus disappoint us at the very end? And this is a question that we're going to look at today, right? Does Jesus disappoint us at the end? So today, we see that Jesus is at the foot of this hill called the skull, historically, traditionally, this hill was kind of like shaped like a skull or whatever, and Jesus is at the, at, at the foot of it, and he's making his way up with the cross. And over the last 24 hours, he's been beaten up terribly, right? He's been punched repeatedly in the face. He's had a crown of thorns on his head. He's been whipped repeatedly with a cord of leather with bits and strips of wood and metal embedded in it. He's basically reduced to a pulp or bloody flesh, right? Blood dripping from his wounds, flesh hanging from his bodies. Physically, he must have felt great pain and suffering. Well, the last 24 hours as well, he hasn't slept. He's been mocked and humiliated and degraded. Saliva has been spat in his face, and emotionally, he's exhausted. So recently, I've been visiting people at hospital, and I realized that the doctors often ask the patient, what pain are you in, right? And they ask you in this pain assessment tool, how much pain are you feeling? I wonder at this moment in time, how much pain Jesus would be feeling? He'll be feeling great, great pain, right? Maybe eight or nine or ten on the scale of this pain assessment tool. And it's this great pain that he finds himself in at the base of the mountain called the skull or the hill called the skull. And that's why 
he is unable to carry the cross up to the hill in which he would be crucified. And so they get this poor guy called Simon of Cyrene to help him carry the cross up that hill. And Simon of Cyrene is just a poor guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. He's probably some Jewish tourist who's come for the Passover, happens to be there. The Roman soldiers conscript him to carry the cross. And there they make their way up to the hill. Simon of Cyrene carrying the cross, Jesus stumbling behind him. The book of Luke records for us the conversation that Jesus has with these women who are accompanying him. The women who were mourning and wailing for him. And Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come where it will be better to be childless and without children and to have no family at all than to have children. Now Jesus here is taking a strange tone, right? If we pay attention, in the midst of his, his suffering, his great pain, he's actually selflessly caring and having concern and loving these women. He doesn't sort of like have the tone where, you know, you think I'm suffering, but wait till you guys get it, right? He says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. It's almost like a father to a child, a father to a daughter, that sort of tone. And he's warning them. He's warning them of the impending destruction of Jerusalem, which will happen in their lifetime. Jesus has warned them before. And we see that within 40 years of Jesus' death, this prophecy will come true, where the Romans will lay siege to Jerusalem. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, as we've been going through the book of Luke, there will be great, great suffering for the people in the city. There will be death, destruction, suffering, starvation, and death. Now, my wife tells me, that I'm a terrible patient. It might be because uh, I'm a man and it's characteristic of me as a, a weak man, but whenever I have a bad cold or a flu, right, my nose is stuck like a cement. I've got a pounding headache. And, uh, you know, I'm, my body's very uncomfortable with the fever. And for me as a man, I think it's the end of the world. I'm dead, right? I'm, I'm this close to dying. And then my wife says to me, you want to wash the dishes? Of course, I, I'm dying. How can I wash the dishes? Right? I do the laundry. Jesus here is on the pain scale of through the roof, nothing but my coal, and he's still selflessly, tenderly concerned for the women and the people around him and telling them and warning them of the destruction and judgment to come. So as we remember Good Friday, right from the very beginning, we see this selfless love of Jesus, right? Even as he makes his way up the hill called the skull, too tired and in pain to carry his own cross, he is still caring and selflessly loving the people around him. In the next section, Luke recalls for us that Jesus is now on the cross. Nails through his hands, nails through his feet, criminal on his right, criminal on his left. And there on the cross, there's a great crowd of people. And they all, in a sense, respond to Jesus in the same way. They all sneer at him. They all mock him, and they are all insulting him. If you look at uh, what they say to him, they are all say, basically saying the same things, right? They're insulting him, and mocking him, and sneering, if you saved others, if he saved others, let him save himself. Let him save himself if he is God, God's Messiah, the Chosen One. 
If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Now personally, I can remember this guy who is one of the quietest, meekest, kindest person that I know. And he's exceedingly rich, right? But he always dresses like an abing, really, really poor. You look at him, right? If he comes to our church one day and he sits here, you'll be like, who is this He's not a beggar, but who is this poor man who's come into our midst, right? But he is really rich. And I know that because one day, a stranger kind of like joined us at the table and started boasting about how rich he was. And he started mocking my poor friend for the way he dressed, right? Like, ah, you'll never understand how rich I am. So this guy, he's really quiet and meek and mild, suddenly exploded, right? literally exploded, raised his voice and said, let me tell you how rich I am. And he took out his phone and showed all the pictures of the houses he owns. Let me tell you how rich I am. And then he showed him all the coffee shops that he owns in Singapore. And then after the guy, the stranger left, we said, hey, what happened to you, right? Like, we've never seen you this way before. He said, you know why? I couldn't take it anymore. I wanted to shut him up. Have you ever felt that way before? Like people say these things to you, like people attack your ego or whatever, you just want to shut people up. Well, imagine what it must have felt like for Jesus that day, right? Here was someone who has the power of God, right? We've seen him calm the storm, cast out the strongest demoniacs, do great miracles. He is the Christ. He's God in himself. He is able to come down off the cross. But instead, he steadfastly, steadfastly chooses to stay on the cross in spite of all the insults and mockery and the sneering. Earlier on in Luke chapter 9, for the very first time we read that the apostles recognized that Jesus is the Christ. What about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered for the apostles, you're God's Messiah, right, the Christ. And immediately Jesus strictly told them not to tell this to anyone, but he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. A few weeks ago, we read in Luke chapter 22 when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane just before he was arrested by the religious leaders. He prayed to God. He knelt down and prayed to God, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. See, Jesus recognized that he needed to stay on the cross because he was the Christ. It was God's plan for him to go through the cross in order to save the world. So the irony is, the crowd were calling to him. They were baying to him. They were sneering and mocking him. He saved others. If you can save others, save yourself, right? If you are the Messiah, save yourself. But actually, the opposite is true, right? Because he saved others, he will not save himself. Because he was the Christ and the Messiah, he will not come down off the cross. Because he was God's son, he will choose to stay on the cross. And that's why we remember Good Friday as well. 
It's not just Jesus' selfless love, but Jesus choosing to stay on that cross right to the very end to take on all its fullness and awfulness of suffering even though it hurt him so much. He chose to stay on the cross for our sake. Now the third scene it's a bit unusual, right? Because in the midst of all the noise and the sneering and the mockery and the insults, we hear this lone voice, right? This lone voice. It's from one of the criminals. We don't know from the left or right. I just kind of choose one side, right? And this lone voice says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, this word here, kingdom, is actually a, a very interesting word in the book of Luke, right, in the Gospel of Luke. The context, as well as how the word has been used in the past, seems to suggest that the criminal is actually asking Jesus to remember him when he enters into the kingdom of God. Not just any kingdom, right? So we look back in the earlier parts of Luke, the kingdom of God, the kingdom is always the kingdom of God. I tell you the, Jew, the truth, Jesus says, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will receive as many times in this age and the age to come receive eternal life. Again, he told this parable because people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And Jesus said that God had given him his kingdom. So you think of it in this context. The man, criminal, on the side of Jesus, when he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom, it's not saying, okay, Jesus do this great miracle. We're all going to come down off the cross and we're all going to go to hospital. We're all going to recover. And then, you know, Jesus will one day become king and then remember me when you become the king of Israel, right? No, it's not. In the midst of all the sneering and the mocking and insulting, what this criminal is actually doing is he's giving a confession of faith. He actually believes that Jesus is the Christ. He actually believes that Jesus is God and to remember him when he enters into the kingdom of God. Now, if that is true, if that's what he's saying, then the words of Jesus is even just as amazing, right? Because it says truly, truly, right? Certainly, definitely, not hopefully. Truly, I tell you, today, right? Within the next 24 hours, you will be with me in paradise. So the man used the word, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, I tell you today you will be with me in paradise. Now again, this word paradise is a very rare word in the Bible. And every time it's used in the Bible, it always means heaven with God. Right? In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. In verse 4, he was caught up in paradise. Revelation chapter 2, to him who overcomes, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the man here says to Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And he's saying no less than heaven. But this is really unbelievable, right? Because if we take a deep breath and we take a step back, just think of it, there is this guy being hung on the cross, Nails through his hands, Jesus next to him, nails on his, through his hands and his feet. They're both naked, probably, because that's the way the Romans wanted to humiliate the people. This guy is a, 
a bad sinner. He's a bad criminal. I mean, why else would the Romans bother to, to crucify him? Right? He even says to the other criminal, we deserve what we're getting. He's a bad guy. Can Jesus actually promise that this person should go to heaven? Seems very far-fetched, right? I mean, is it reasonable? So when you hear the words of the criminal, and you hear the words of Jesus, it reminds me of what this uh, famous Christian writer C.S. Lewis said, right? Jesus is either a liar, or a lunatic, or his Lord, right? Because can Jesus really promise what he just said? He's either a liar, he's just helping to make the poor guy feel better until he dies of crucifixion, right? Or he's a lunatic because he believes that he is some super-duper person who can actually save this criminal who is a great sinner to be brought into heaven. Or he actually is able to do what he promises to do. He can actually today, 24 hours, bring this guy to paradise. Does Jesus disappoint in the end? In the last scene, Luke records for us the last three hours before Jesus breathes his last. It's now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining. So the darkness came not because it was hazy, it was a cloudy day, but something cosmic was happening. Something significant was happening, right? There was a message being sent. So before 12, it was like this. And then after 12, it became like this. The sun shot shining. There was no more sun. Something supernatural was happening. So what is the message? What is the message of this darkness that happens in the last three hours before Jesus dies? In the Old Testament, darkness and the sun not shining is often associated with God's judgment. In Amos chapter 8, the basket of the fruit is ripe. So judgment time is ripe. And Jesus says, during this judgment that comes in that day, in verse 9, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Again, in the Old Testament, in the book of Joel, the day of the Lord, right? The day of the Lord's judgment comes. And again, supernatural signs, right? Before them, the earth shakes and the heavens tremble and the sun and moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. So the darkness actually symbolizes that Jesus took our judgment. That's what the darkness means. That's the message that the darkness is sending. Now I remember one of my most painful memories uh, when I was going to theological college was having my sermon reviewed by this quite famous preacher called John Chapman. Anyway, so I preached about Jesus dying on the cross. And uh, John Chapman uh, said, oh, you know, I actually didn't preach it very well because I kept focusing on the physical pain of Jesus and the emotional pain of Jesus. But actually, the, the pain of Jesus physically and emotionally is nothing compared to the pain of being this substitute and taking our judgment upon his body. Jesus didn't just take my judgment or your judgment individually. Jesus took all judgment, corporately, of the whole world, right, universally, of all the people who lived lives in the world. And not just in that time, but un, you know, like chronologically, through all time, the past, present, the future. 
In those three hours, in a sense, when the darkness came, it was symbolically telling the whole world and telling us today that Jesus dies on the cross and takes judgment for all people of all time in all the world. Now, at that time that this is happening, Luke recalls for us that concurrently, at the same time, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, these two symbols, or these two actions, or supernatural activities, obviously need to be read together, right? The darkness, judgment paid by Jesus, as well as the curtain being torn in two. We're meant to see it synonymously and informing, explaining one another. Now, the curtain was in the innermost part of the temple, okay? So, in the innermost part of the temple was this curtain that you can see here. And this curtain, in a sense, separates the holy of holies, or the most holy place in the temple, from the rest of the temple. In the holy of holies was where the Ark of the Covenant was, which symbolizes God's presence. And even the priests could only enter into the holy of holies once a year, after having sacrificed many, many uh, animals, goats and bulls, as well as a lot of washing. And so this curtain, in many ways, is meant to represent the separation between a holy God and sinful people. Uh, I'm sure all of us have flown in airplanes, right? So from my experience, I'm always sitting in economy. And there's always this curtain, right, blocking me from the business class. And this curtain is basically telling me, right, that, you know, my place is economy and I have no place in business class. Maybe you're in business, lah. And there's another curtain which tells you, actually, your place is in business, but you have no place in first class, right? And so that's what the curtain is trying to tell us, you know, that we have no place with God because God is holy, but we are sinful. Now, historically, from what we understand, this curtain is like super duper thick. It's not like the curtains and separating business class and first class and economy and business. This is like a thick, plush, heavy carpet, which you can't cut with your knife or your scissors, right? So something extraordinary happens when this curtain is torn. It's God at work. And what God is really saying here is that because Jesus took our judgment, at the same time, the curtain that separates holy God and sinful human beings is now torn. The way between a holy God and sinful human beings is now open, right? We can now have communion, we can now have relationship, we can now have fellowship with a holy God. And then she says that Jesus' promise to the criminal on the cross is true. He is the Lord. He is able to bring that sinful criminal to paradise, into the presence of God, because he is the one who takes the judgment of his sins. Now, the last thing that is recorded for us before Jesus dies, just as he dies, is Jesus calls out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last, and the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Centurion was a Roman soldier, a legionnaire, who was in charge of 100 soldiers. Uh, it's a bit like centurion, century, right? Same kind of idea, century, centurion, 100, right? So he was a respected soldier, 
a soldier with responsibility and authority. He probably witnessed many hundreds of uh, crucifixions or executions, but he recognized that something different had happened here. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. What a weird thing to say. Do you think it's weird? I think it's weird. If you thought of, let's say the newspaper reported tomorrow that an innocent man was executed in Changi prison, would you praise God? No, you wouldn't, right? You would say there's this gross injustice. An innocent man was executed and hung in Changi prison. There will be huge uproar. There will be some ministerial inquiry, right? But here, Jesus, this righteous man that the Shurian recognizes, dies on the cross and he praises God. Why is that? Why does he praise God? Well, firstly, I think it's because he saw what had happened. The darkness, maybe he had heard about the, the curtain being torn in the, the temple. But what seems to be very important is this word righteous, right? He doesn't say, surely this was an innocent man. In the book of Luke, righteous is always the opposite of sinner. Right? If you look in the book of Luke, every time he uses righteous, it's the opposite of sinner. Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke chapter 15. I tell you that in the same way, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So what the centurion is actually testifying to, what he's actually saying, is that when Jesus dies on the cross, he is the righteous sacrifice. He's the righteous man. He's right with God. He is able to take the judgment for the sins of people around him because he is this righteous sacrifice. He's not just innocent. He's right before God. And because he is this righteous sacrifice, therefore the curtain between the holy God and a sinful human being is now torn. So what do we learn about Good Friday? Good Friday fundamentally is about Jesus being able to keep the promise to deliver the criminal and bring him into paradise. Right? The words of Jesus are so important. Right? Certainly, truly, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, in conclusion, if you think about Good Friday, the three elements, right? The selfless love of Jesus, Jesus steadfastly staying on the cross, and Jesus being our righteous sacrifice. Now, over the last few um, weeks, I've been eating at different places. And you know, you, I went to this burger joint. You know, you order the burgers uh, like McDonald's and all the Burger King and all the different places. You scroll through the menu, right? And they show you the burger. A bit like this. The burgers look so good, no? Really thick, crusty buns, fresh vegetables, thick meat, well cooked, right? Anyway, you order it, and when I get it, you get this soggy bread, thin slice of millimeter beef, and uh, some wilted lettuce, right? Now, last week, I joined my son. He invited me to go to this Korean restaurant. And uh, he, invite, he bought this thing, which I had to look up, called Dionjang Guk, which is some soybean meal, right? Anyway, again, the picture looks so great, right? It's like, wow, tofu, meat, uh, 
mushrooms. And then the meal comes. You probably need a sieve to find all the ingredients inside because it's only like soup, but hardly any ingredients, right? It's nothing like what you see in the picture and the menu that you order. We, we live in an age where people overpromise, uh, but underdeliver. Right? They advertise more than they actually deliver. But what is really extraordinary is that whenever we come to the Good Friday story, we see that Jesus is the complete opposite, right? He doesn't disappoint. Not only does he disappoint, he seems like more and more worthy of our trust and our faith and our following. He is selfless in his love, even in his pain and suffering. He remains on the cross, even though people are mocking him to come down. He is the perfect sacrifice who bears all the sins of the world. It's really unusual because when you think of it, the only person that day who really benefited from Jesus dying on the cross was the criminal. He was the only one who was delivered, right? He was the only one who went to paradise in the kingdom of God and heaven. Now, what was so special about this guy? Well, everybody else was mocking Jesus, insulting Jesus, and sneering at Jesus. He actually was the only one who recognized that he was sinful. You notice that? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. We could be the same here today. right? We come here, we listen to the story of Jesus, but we don't really feel and recognize like that criminal does their sin. We don't recognize that actually our deeds, the things that we do, also need to be punished justly. The second thing the criminal does as well is he says to Jesus in faith, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, I think for all of us here, both those elements need to be there. We need to be like that criminal. We need to recognize that our deeds need to be punished justly by God. And we need to turn to Jesus in faith and say to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Because only then will we hear those wonderful words of Jesus, right? Truly I tell you, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Those are the words that we all need to hear from Jesus, right? Those are the only words that really, really matter when it comes down to everything. And Jesus will not disappoint us. It is worth following Jesus because those words will resonate for eternity into paradise. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we want to ask you this Good Friday to help us to understand the deepest significance of what is happening here. That Jesus, out of selfless love, steadfastly stayed on the cross to be the righteous sacrifice and to take the judgment of the whole world corporately, but for myself individually as well. Dear Father, we pray that we may all be like that criminal that in the midst of disdain, sneering, and mocking, recognized his own sin, that he needed to be punished justly 
and turned to Jesus in faith, called out to him to remember him when he entered into his kingdom. And so we pray for all of us that indeed we will be like that criminal who will turn to Jesus and to trust in him, for he is able to deliver. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, we will now move into a time for discussion. So please uh, turn to your neighbour and discuss the question on the slide. Okay, the question for this afternoon is, why is Jesus worth following? And I will come back uh, later on, to when, uh, in about five minutes' time. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.